the Learning 3.0 podcast. I'm Rustika Lamb from Bloom, and in each episode, I chat to learning and technology thought leaders and how to support business performance through people performance. In this podcast, I interview Josh Squires, who's the Senior Vice President of Loop.co, a veteran of learning, technology, and learning in the flow of work. He has an ABD PhD in learning, design, and technology from the University of Atlanta. He's always been at the forefront of learning, design, and technology. He's Beirut-based, but a true global citizen. Enjoy this podcast with Josh Squires. So, Josh, welcome to the Learning 3.0 podcast. How are you today? Doing great, Christina. How about yourself? Yes, good, good, good. And um, you're up there in Beirut. I guess maybe some people may not know that. And you're all safe and well? Doing well, doing well. It was a little bit of a hairy situation for a bit. There was about half an hour where I, I couldn't get a hold of my, my wife and kids. I was actually about... 90 minute drive south on the uh, seaside town and um yeah it was it was a bit scary but they're safe everybody's okay and um we're just kind of picking up the pieces and moving forward yeah yeah when we heard that we we're just you know really hoping you're safe and thank goodness for the facebook um you know i am safe app because we we're going yes yeah, yeah, we right. looked there and uh, you tagged yourself so that was really awesome you know i've almost ended my relationship with facebook but they did uh make that tool available and i am thankful for them for that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely and um of course my first thought was um you know given our long history of working together across multiple different platforms and uh many late nights with wine. It was my first question. I hope he's got a good stock of wine. And it sounds like you did. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. I think the shockwave did some damage to the wine glasses, but when I when I check the bottles, uh, all, all is good. <laughs> <laughs> so if we see photos floating around of you drinking out of a bottle, it's only because your wine glasses got smashed, right? 100%, 100%. Good. Excellent. All right. Well, we're not really here to talk about wine, I guess, um, although it is wine o'clock in New Zealand. So I often say recently, like it's us Gen Xs who are around who, you know, I think are really going to make a difference in this time. Yeah, we've got the baby boomers who are sort of retiring and run out of energy. And then we've got the millennials on the other side of us who probably don't have the experience that we do. And both you and I have been, and you in particular, have been in learning tech for a long time. And in fact, you're almost PhD was sort of focused on that as well. So, you know, you've got a great history and background in that. You know, we've had those recessions in 2002 and 2008, and it'd be really good just to get your take on how that affected L&D and, and both of those times and how it might be different this time. Well, I mean, I've actually been building, I guess, interactive e-learning content since uh, about 94. And I, I think in 2002, we saw kind of the beginning of the industry after the recession. I think um, one of the things that historically has been proving true time and time again is when the when the market has a significant downturn, lots of people are laid off and people need to get trained. A lot of people are, I guess, kind of relying on, on some kind of legacy skill sets and um, to pivot and adjust to the new conditions of the market. Obviously, those skill sets have to get refreshed. Um, 2002 is a little bit interesting because the internet, while not necessarily new, was basically the third session happened because of the dot-com bubble. Um, <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I think the hype was there. Um, but I think that's where you, you saw the creation of the first series of, I guess, modern learning management systems. Mm. Um, you know, Martin Dugamas out of Australia, he kind of launched uh, Moodle uh, right around that time. And then 
you know, you saw the formation of a number of uh, large corporate players, maybe not 2002, but very near after. Swarm was already a standard that was developed and uh, it was actually moving into Swarm 2004, which we're, for some reason, still happily supporting for 99% of our e-learning. Um, <laughs> for the audience <laughs> doing XPI, bravo. <laughs> well, it's like that uh, post that I put off about, you know, is SCORM outdated and it's had over 10,000 views. And, and to your point, it's probably still around because XAPI is brilliant, but it takes an effort to understand and actually to implement. Well, there, there's no real like solid killer XAPI tool. I mean, it's, it's you can literally use it to do anything. And when you can use something to do anything, how do you track anything? Because yes. um, the, 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 the tracking endpoints also have to be built. Um, so, you know, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, it's an awesome tool. But I think whoever can execute on that that killer app that just makes it super easy to do stuff with, it'll be on its way. Mm. But until then, it's well in 2004. <laughs> yeah. And look, there's a crowd in New Zealand who started out as an applicant tracking system, Talent Apps. And they sort of very fast realized that actually there was a whole lot of other HR tools that needed to be connected. So they now have this talent app store and they actually have pre-purpose built these APIs, which you just, you just push a button from within and connect for those ones in the marketplace. So something like that, I agree. Like if you could do that on a learning management system or in your content, it would be just brilliant. So, but I think as that post was saying, you've got to be really, really clear on what you're trying to achieve, what are you trying to track? Because as you say, you could track anything. So Absolutely. Well, I think it all comes down to the experience you want to give the learners. And so hopefully we're transitioning away from the narrated PowerPoints with the next and back buttons, but... (laughs) (laughs) And the text is the same as the audio. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, in in, in 2008, I think that's kind of what we saw, right? So you saw kind of a big pushback from... Like 2002 to 2008 for me was kind of like one of the golden ages of e-learning because we had Flash and we could do all <laughs> sorts of things. Um, I was building interactive Flash games. We were doing crazy awesome e-learning projects with Disney. We launched this whole kind of educational assessment engine sitting behind one of Disney's largest virtual properties called Penguin. Everything was getting tracked. It was a virtual online, massively multi-user online world built around Flash. And it was cool. We literally could build kind of any learning sequence that we thought of. And then I guess around 2012, the next recession kind of kicked off the SaaS wars, as I like to call them. Mm. Um, and, and, and we're kind of in that now. And so I think this recession is going to be really interesting, mainly because I think you're going to start to see a rapid transition of kind of the traditional legacy players and legacy vendors and the migration into kind of these next-gen, what business problems are we trying to solve platforms? You need everything, we have everything. Yeah, and which ultimately makes them complicated because, you know, some of the big players you said that were around your early 2000s who are now those core leaders on Fosway in the market, they people just, they don't like using them because there's just so much and it's too hard to use. And people don't need all the bells and whistles, right? That's it. That's it. Well, I mean, what business problem are you trying to solve and get a platform that's fit for purpose? Mm. And if you have a bunch of business problems, okay, that's fine. But understand that the bunch of business problems, if you can consolidate them and try to streamline them against business objectives, against learning objectives, and moving kind of the L&D professional into the business and away from the consulting role as an external service provider, I think you're going to actually see that you don't need 
a lot of these features. I mean, gamification, it's a great idea. And if you've got a Disney level budget and you're working with professional game developers, I think it's a phenomenal, powerful tool. Mm. If you don't, I'm not saying that you can't do it. I'm just saying that most learners, they don't need badges or points or anything like that. They just need to do their job better and faster. Yeah. And, and I need it now and I need it in my pocket. Thank you very much. That's it. That's it. I'm used to the age of Google. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So from an emergence from that point of view, what sort of tech, we're going to go with the tech because it seems like with COVID, there's been, you know, Microsoft Teams have sort of jumped on big time and, and so these virtual training rooms. And what I've seen a lot of people do is just pick up their face-to-face and plonk it on and go, right, sit here in front of a Zoom camera for six hours. So there's there's no learning design <laughs> going on to that. So, so yeah. there's, there's all those sorts of tools around. Where do you think it might head from a technology point of view now? Well, hopefully we're approaching this kind of golden age of, uh, of learning that we've been promised since uh, 2000, where uh, you know the technology uh, or I guess infrastructure speed of the internet is fast enough to start serving up the bandwidth requirements of kind of immersive learning. And so a lot of my doctoral work was in uh, virtual worlds and how do you actually kind of engage in people in kind of both 3D as well as live video stream immersive environments. And, you know, the problem is the the bandwidth requirements and the tech requirements is so heavily expensive. Even VR has been trying to get going, but there hasn't been that killer app. You know, Apple hasn't come out with their version yet, right? Yeah, so, so I, I agree with you. That's been around for so long and it's got so much great application. But what do you think the barrier's been? Well, I mean, so, so 1993, Lawnmower Man came out. Did you say Lawnmower? Lawnmower Man. Yeah, it's an <laughs> old, old, old reference. So uh, well, take a look at it. It's one of the very, very first kind of Hollywood uh, applications of virtual reality. And uh, there's a virtual reality arcade uh, up the road from where I live. You know, we were paying, I don't know, I think it's like a buck a minute or something in the, in the 90s. <laughs> it's pretty expensive. Um, oh my God, I remember but, that. But I think, I mean, take that application and put it down here. I mean, it's gotten cheaper, but I still don't have it yet. So maybe if, uh, I don't know, football associations around the world pick it up because they don't have any fans going to stadiums, might be, <laughs> might yeah. be uh, a kickoff. Oh, yeah. Um, do, do you think it's cost? Well, I mean, imagine how expensive it is to build um, training without using a rapid offering tool. Yeah. And then I think for, for like kind of large-scale simulations, it's actually quite powerful. I think for, I need to know something now. We don't need to invest in it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to have a learning experience that's as easy as just asking Google something. Yeah. And I think the organizations and the tech providers that make user experience, customer satisfaction, the overall user, the learner as the end point of their design process, you're going to see them win. Mm. Adding every feature under the sun, I mean, it's great, but you need to put a user experience on top of it that uh, makes the clunkiness transparent. Mm. And we're seeing this in the tech applications. I mean, we're, we're seeing the really cool platforms that, that make it really easy. It's what made Google, Google and Apple, Apple. Yeah, exactly. Frictionless. <laughs> given your extensive you know, education background and given that the word training is actually just education, corporate speak for training is corporate speak for education. Do you not still think there's a place for an education piece? And, you know, I'm thinking about Bob Mosher's five learning need where there is new and change, which is sort of an education piece. But then, you know, his big thing is start with apply, which is that whole in the flow of work. Yep. I think there's still a place for education, right? 
Absolutely. My, well, so yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's semantics at that point and it, it's really how you want to describe it and how you want to piece it together. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a voracious learner. I read, you know, three, four or five hours a day in my spare time, which is very limited, but um, usually <laughs> late at night while the kids are in bed. Um, it, it always stuns me how much stuff you know about such a wide variety of stuff. <laughs> now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole concept of being an autodidact or a self-directed learner, it's a skill I learned a long time ago. And I think it's something that everybody is going to have to pick up. I think you're seeing universities undergo a massive transition. On a side note, I think there was a very interesting statistic I saw in one of my news feeds that um, there's a number of U.S. education institutes that um, when they realized that their American football season couldn't start, they realized that they were financially in trouble. And so the, the, the joke was looking like U.S. higher education institutes are uh, providing education as a side hustle for football. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I think for a long time we have. And uh, I, I think formal education, formal training programs are important. But out of all the educational models that there are since the, you know, we've been formally studying this process or instructional design process, not one of them says standing up and lecturing at somebody for a period of time is yeah. an effective way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And and so migrating somebody from lecturing uh, in a room to lecturing on the Zoom, sure, you know what? Record yourself in a YouTube, send it over. It's about as impactful. People will pay attention almost as much. Mm. Um, <laughs> and they can fast forward you or not, or exactly. rewind you or not. <laughs> Put you on mute. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that's it. And there, there's a huge opportunity now to get the, the flow of work, learning actually applied. And one of my favorite educational teaching mark training models is learning through failure. So social deconstructionist, if you will. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's kind of throw you in the deep end and basically be there to assist and and coach and mentor as you're struggling. And if you look at the video game industry, this is what most video games do in a brilliant way. You don't, on level one, get to kill the dragon because then the game's over. And at the same time, you also don't want to make it so fun that there's really nowhere else to go. You just kind of make them struggle, make them do the grind, but then at the very end, they can kill the dragon. And in that, that's a really powerful model. And if we can apply this to Zooms and Slacks and and Teams in a way where you're actually working in an authentic environment, you're going to have a powerful learning model. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think the CEO of WD40, Gary, can't remember his surname, he's got a whole consulting business around the moment of, was it the moment of learning and where failure is a big part of their culture and their business results for WD40 are just absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, absolutely. I totally get that for sure. So what about teams? Like what are teams going to look like? Because that first wave of COVID, you saw a lot of people in L&D lose their jobs mm-hmm. and moving into other roles. What, what do you think the teams are going to look like in the future? Hopefully it goes flat. <laughs> Hopefully it becomes dynamic skill-based. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I mean, self-organizing teams is actually a pretty interesting, not necessarily new concept, but it's a phenomena that we're slowly starting to see predominantly in kind of more progressive European countries. I've been seeing a a few organizations in in the Netherlands and in the Nordics. 
basically remove and, and remove forcibly strip out the entire middle management layer. And I saw this starting to happen as early as last year. I think we were even talking about it when I came to visit in last fall. Mm. And the interesting thing with that is you've got functional and cross-functional skill sets of your employees, and they basically kind of organize the structure based on the problem that they're looking to solve. Who's got the skill sets? And they don't have a bunch of fancy tools around skills that recommend and then surface different things. I imagine that if there was a tool set out there that can make that done without 10 years of setup requirement, they would probably love to use it. But <laughs> yeah. It's a lot more talking. Hey, I've got this problem. All right, how do we fix it? Okay, I think this is it. Okay, let's try. And, mm-hmm. and, and so less bureaucracy, less clutter, less, I guess, you kind of cover it in your backside. And you know, unfortunately, that's what a lot of the management layer is being forced to do from a compliance perspective, from a legal perspective, from uh, just mm. making sure that everybody's P's and Q's are minded. And we, we forget that at the end of the day, we just need to get stuff done. Mm. And I think the organizations that can respond in a truly agile way, I love kind of the, the, the model of a design thinking agile approach, right? Mm-hmm. And so what are we trying to do? Do we have data that supports that this is something that we should be doing? Yes. And once we have that data, let's iterate on it, get more information about it. And then let's let's set up a bunch of sprints with the people who are going to be best able to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And I think learning in a lot of ways has to evolve into being the driver of that. At the end of the day, our job, we're trying to get people skilled up, trained up, learned up, on a variety of different things. And uh, we need to update our own skill sets, but for sure, the, the entire company, I mean, how do we go about this? And the more we think of ourselves as a part of the team rather than a consultant mm-hmm. guiding the team, um, the easier it is for us to have these conversations. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And be really aligned with you know, what the business is trying to achieve and, and help them get there, I guess. Yeah. And so I think, you know, from a virtual teaming perspective, just looking at Slack and teams and how that's actually opened up the ability for people to go fully virtual. Mm. You know, I know organizations that fully online during COVID and they're like, you know what, we're going to have a really hard time convincing the CFO that we need to actually spend money on these really fancy, expensive COVID storage units. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah, I got it, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, why not? If I can work from Bali and be just as productive, if not more, let me work from Bali. <laughs> well, you see, uh, you never did come and visit me there, and, and now we may not have. Well, a you were gone too fast. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to come visit before the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anything else you sort of want to add in, in terms of the future of learning and learning in the flow of work? Yeah, I mean, I could probably go on forever, but um, I think learning in the flow of work as a concept, it's kind of a a new spin on an old idea. It's kind of the performance support system. It's just-in-time learning. It's the EPSS uh, that's been kind of the... Well, I mean, it's been the grail of learning since forever. The electronic performance support system was kind of a massive investment. I know that uh, a lot of the militaries across the world started 
investing in heavily with uh, the dawn of the small personal computer and the tough books and things like that. A lot of my, my academic mentors and advisors were building these massive systems that allowed battlefield data to be surfaced in a, in a just-in-time manner. The innovations that happened there kind of were really one of the drivers for a lot of the learning technology that we use today. The big gap that we've always had, though, is that just-in-time learning. So workflow learning, just-in-time learning, they're, they're very similar things. I need to know how to do something for my job, and I need to have it at my fingertips. So if you put in a one-hour lecture or video into your system, then obviously, unless you have an incredibly powerful search algorithm, finding that is going to be quite tough. But more importantly, do you need to have the full amount of content in there? Can you just make snippets of content that kind of get you across how you need to get across the, the information that you need when you need it? I think systems are moving to that direction. I think that if you look at kind of like a lot of the next-gen platforms, it's not about here's 40,000 swarm titles. <laughs> you know, that, yes. that's not what we need to do. And even though that there is some formal reskilling that, you know, I think the, the larger courses could potentially help with, a lot of it is this just-in-time information that uh, I think is going to be absolutely critical for us as we're reskilling. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned about EPSS because I had another conversation a couple of days ago with one of the guests on this podcast and um, he also mentioned EPSS. So, in New Zealand, we haven't really heard that term. So do you want to mm. just explain what that is? Because it sounds like, it's, as you say, it's like it's just something that's come around again, <laughs> but we've called it something else. Yeah, I mean, if you dig into the history, it was basically the first iteration of LMS. It typically sat built within a very clunky enterprise software environment that was very painful to use. And a lot of the EPSS technology that's on the market today are still wrapped in very enterprise technologies that are clunky to use. But basically, I guess the, the easiest way to think of it is kind of a knowledge management platform. So kind of like your knowledge base, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, very simplistic description of it. There's a lot of other tools that these platforms can utilize to actually help surface performance areas. But the industry, as I'm seeing it, is moving back to let's not push learning, let's push being available to support learning. And I think you're starting to see trends. You're starting to hear EPSS come back around. And believe me, most, most people in the States, unless we're L&D professionals in the 80s and early 90s, probably, you know, this may be the second or third time they've heard it as well. Um, yeah. Because it is our very old tech concept. And then, you know, from performance support to management of learning, I think we're coming back into a cycle where... With the, the impending economic collapse of the global economies, if that is a thing, um, we're going to have to get lean. And so we don't have time for, you know, kind of very bulky, clunky tools. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I do find it interesting because just for my own master's paper, I had to sort of look at the history of, of all of this. And I was looking at, you know, hashtags on LinkedIn, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, learning the flow of work. Just very, I was surprised how little hashtags that how many people had been using that hashtag actually um, mm. and then when I did a search you know internet search and a bit of a scholar search as well it sort of seems that Josh Burson popped his head up in about 2018 with an article on it so it hasn't really had the traction so maybe this is how it'll get the traction now because people realize that that's what's needed now 
Absolutely. And, and it could be that the, you know, it's, it's not trendy enough. The buzzword isn't sticky enough and maybe we need to, to rebrand it and give it a, <laughs> um, a, better, a better buzzword. L&D people, you know, we love our buzz. Yeah. Every year we got to jump on, uh, on a buzzword bandwagon and, uh, and follow it until the next year's buzzword comes out. And, <laughs> you know, the marketing genius that uh, put learning the flow of work, I guess, person likes to take credit for it. You know, maybe it's not sticky enough. So, Rustica, I think you got your, your work cut out for for 2021. <laughs> Get stickier. <laughs> well, how about I meet you in Beirut and we'll uh, have, have some of that wine of yours and we'll come up with it, eh? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, I guess, finally, um, any sort of tips or advice that you'd give for L&D leaders, L&D practitioners in these times? Get lean. I think it's the advice that I always give. And um, from an L&D perspective, it's embed within the business. You're not separate. You're not a service provider for the business. You actually are part of the business. You are an entity within the business structure, typically sitting within operations, lots of times sitting under human resources. But the goal of, of kind of people and, and upscaling people needs to be very laser aligned with what the business is trying to do, either from a growth standpoint or a revenue standpoint or both. And so the, the learning community, the learning teams, we can make a massive impact. And you know, when we have employees that are off of center or, or maybe not necessarily have the correct skills, a lot of times it's very easy to get a library of content, drop it at them and uh, say, all right, you've got access to all these skills. But I think you can very easily kind of move around and uh, potentially rethink how that's going to work. It's like, all right, well, what are we actually trying to do? How are we trying to do it? What are the different teams involved? And maybe I can actually get other teams to train these teams rather than um, relying on a lot of our traditional methods. Mm. I think if you see a lot of the the hyper growth organizations, uh, you know, Google is one of my favorite examples. Um, I don't know that Google even knows what Swarm is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they've just put out that um, like certification that you don't have to go to university for four years, and they, they've provided that. And, and did I hear it's free? If it's Google, I'm sure it is. I mean, it's yeah. free for now. They'll get your data somehow, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Agreeing to use my data, I'll, I'll be able to do that in you know, two years' time instead of four. So, exactly. Yeah, most interesting. But I, I think that's that's the point, though. I mean, like, what, what are these kind of hyper-growth companies doing, and what's their culture of learning? And I, and I know, I mean, as I've been to New Zealand, and you guys aren't hugely different than other parts of the world in, in a lot of your kind of design and learning organization. It's like, yeah, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a small 50-person company, you know, mom and pop, and you know, I'm not going to be Google. Um, yeah. I get that. But I think, sure, you're not going to be Google, but what does Google do well? And, and they stay very agile, right? So they try to have a kind of a decentralized learning structure where everybody's kind of responsible for keeping track of their own skills and, and, and upskilling themselves and sharing with the community. It's like, hey... You know, uh, Sally, you've been asking me 25 times how to do this. I just built you a resource on it. Here you go. Um, You know, and making that part of the KPI where everybody's responsible for helping everybody else get better. As an example, it may not be one that works for everybody, but I think throwing traditional learning objects at things um, 
No one likes doing those. <laughs> no, that's right. So really it's thinking about what's required first, then having the tech enable rather than it being about the tech first. It's actually about what are we trying to achieve first. Always, always. I mean, you, you never see big successful companies that say, hey, I've got tech. What does it do? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah. SAP, don't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, we good. do everything depending on how many PhDs you have. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I'm sure people have really, who've listened and have really enjoyed, what um, is the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, um, feel free to, to drop me an email, josh at lttopco or LinkedIn profile. Uh, if you want to surface that on uh, a podcast notes, notes, that'd be mm-hmm. great. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions or make friends on LinkedIn. Generally a personable guy. And if uh, you, uh, you want to donate to my wine collection in Beirut, you know, I'm accepting all donations. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> on, sure. on a serious note, though, if, if, if anybody is uh, interested in donating to the relief effort, um, I, I will uh, happily share some uh, reputable uh, relief agency uh, information. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. And it's just been, as usual, a delight talking with you. Absolutely. Thanks, Rustica. Okay. Thanks, Josh. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to get in touch with me to suggest topics or speakers, you can contact me on LinkedIn or Facebook or find the links in the show notes below. Keep on smiling. Smiling.